Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, James chapter 5. And we have Bibles so that everybody can follow along. We're going to look at a fairly extended passage. So having a Bible will help you. So these guys have some, get their attention so that they can get a Bible to you and it's marked at the passage we'll be considering in James chapter 5. And this is our last message in the book of James. For months we've been going through these five chapters together and now we conclude our look at this series that we had entitled Real Faith, Genuine Faith, Authentic Faith. And throughout the series, I remind you that in your New Testament, the word that is translated faith is also translated belief. So when we say real faith, we mean real belief, genuine belief. And the idea of the book of James is a number of expressions of faith, belief, that show it to be genuine and authentic. The absence of these expressions then call into question the authenticity of what we claim to believe. And James is saying, if we say we believe, we should behave in particular ways. And today we conclude our look at this marvelous letter. When in difficulty, you and I are going to react in one way or another. We're going to do, do so usually in some form of communication. That communication may be internal to ourselves. Perhaps we'll brood and develop the slow burn of anger or a sense of victimization because we are in this particular difficulty. This should not be happening to me, we may think. Or we may communicate with others and complain and blame or gossip. God says our first communication, our first response to our circumstances should not be in self-counsel, or seeking the affirmation of like-minded complainers, which are always easy to find. But rather, our first and ongoing words should be breathed out to Him in prayer. This final passage that we're going to look at in the book of James ends this letter at the very place that it began. You may remember in chapter 1 and verse 2, we were told, Brothers, consider it pure joy, when, not if. You face trials, difficulties of various kinds. And then we are told after that to pray to God, to breathe out prayer to God. Verse 5 of chapter 1, that we should ask God for wisdom so that we will know how to apply the truth that we say we believe to the difficulty that God has allowed in our lives. And James is now going to end the letter where he began. We saw last week in chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, that patience and perseverance are required for us because, indeed, we live in a fallen world that is fraught with difficulty. And now in verses 13 through 18, James is going to say the response to that difficulty needs to be prayer once again, asking God to help us to glorify Him and to pursue this difficulty, bear up under it, in a way that will achieve his purposes and bring glory to his name. So James is telling us by starting his letter this way and ending it this way, that prayer is not to be our last resort, but prayer should be our very first resort in all situations. And with that, let's bow and ask God to help us as we look at his word. 
Father, we thank you for this time to gather and to look intently into the pages of your word. We ask you, Lord, to help us. We need your help at all times and in every endeavor. And we need your help, Lord, as we look into your word because our hearts often grow cold, because we still struggle, I still struggle with indwelling sin that causes me to shut out your truth and not want to hear your truth. Oh, Lord, open our minds. Open our hearts so that we receive your truth and apply it in a way that grows us and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. We gave you an outline that you should have received inserted in your program when you came in. It's an outline of the message from James 5, verses 13 through, through 20. And I say there, first of all, that believers are to pray in all Situations, And I say that because of what verse 13 of James 5 says. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Believers are to pray in all situations. And I say that because the word that's translated trouble in verse 13 is the same word that's translated in verse 10 that we saw last week as, as suffering. So you could see in verse 13 here, is any of you suffering? Is any of you in difficulty? The NIV then translates it helpfully. Is any of you in any kind of difficulty, any kind of of trouble? And so the first type of circumstance that should move us to pray is when we are suffering. And that's what I say in your outline. We pray when suffering. And this word that's translated trouble in verse 13, suffering in verse 10, it's a general word that covers all sorts of circumstances. And we're not the first to face whatever sort of trouble God has allowed into our lives because life in a fallen world means there's all sorts of trouble to be in, and you can be sure that there are someone or someone somewhere in the same kind of suffering you are in now or have been in the past. Back in verses 11 through 12, we were reminded of the suffering of the prophets, those in the first part of your Bible called the Old Testament. And verses 10 and 11 say, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. Now, who are some of those people? I mentioned a few of them last week. I just quickly remind you that it includes people like Jeremiah, who suffered opposition. It includes people like Ezekiel, who suffered bereavement, or Hosea, who suffered a marital breakdown. And of course, Job is mentioned specifically in last week's passage. And we know that Job suffered the loss of his health and his possessions and his children. And so when verse 13 asks, is any in trouble, it's saying, is any of you in bad situations of whatever type like those who have gone before us, a Jeremiah, an Ezekiel, a Hosea, a Job, and many others who could be named. But then verse 13 asks another question. Not only is any of you in trouble, but then verse 13 says, is anyone happy? And the word that's translated happy has to do with an attitude, a frame of mind that's positive and cheerful. Now hear this carefully. The circumstance of this happy or cheerful cheerful person may or may not be a good circumstance. You see, the word, when it says, is any of you happy, doesn't say anything about the situation they're in. 
It's simply saying that their attitude, their mindset, their heart attitude is a cheerful one. And that may be in a good or a difficult circumstance. Now, that's foreign to most of us. Because immediately when you see trouble and you see happy, you assume, we assume it's contrasting a bad circumstance with a good circumstance because we're happy when we're in good circumstances. But God says and tells us over and over again that we can actually have something that is deep and abiding called joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that's why, secondly, I say in your outline, we pray, yes, when suffering, but we also pray when rejoicing. When rejoicing. Now, I have a number of passages each week that I usually put on the screen and I show them to you so that you don't have to turn there. And I don't have those on the screen for reasons that I will give you at the end of the message. So you're just going to have to listen as I read for you what would have been on the screen. But that God's Word tells us to pray when rejoicing. We find in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And if we have this joy that the Bible speaks of in either good circumstances or bad, then that joy should be expressed to the God who gave that joy. And so even if the circumstance is difficult, I can still be cheerful, I can still rejoice And it is God who allows me to do that contrary to all of our natural bent. And if one is in that situation, is anyone happy? Let him, verse 13 says, sing songs of praise. That's a particular type of prayer. It's being breathed out in song, obviously. But rather than asking for something, this individual now is is praising God and thanking God for something that he's done. And the word that's translated song there is a Greek word from which we get our English word psalm. And the psalms are very often songs of praise and thanks to God, as you know, for things that he has done on behalf of his people. So if God has done this supernatural thing in you, which contrary to every bent all of us have in a difficult circumstance, to still have the joy of the Lord, then we're to breathe out a song, a prayer of praise to Him for what He has done. So believers are to pray in all situations, good times and bad, and most of us have and will experience plenty of both. One commentator says the Christian life is to be an exercise in practiced consecration, to hallow every pleasure and sanctify each pain. Our whole life, we might say, should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into His presence. In particular, this is an exercise in glad acceptance of the will of God. This is the common denominator of both prayer and praise. In praise we say to Him, Your will is good and perfect and acceptable. This is what You have done for me, and I rejoice. And as for prayer in time of trouble, it attempts, however poorly we may succeed, to copy the prayer of Jesus in the garden the night before he died. Not my will, but yours. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was in agony, the Scripture says in Luke chapter 22, when he was wrestling with the forces of evil at the moment of strongest attack, Scripture says, quote, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. 
Friends, prayer may not remove the affliction, but it most certainly will transform the affliction. Prayer sometimes changes things, but it always, always changes us. And that's why believers are to pray in all situations. But I say in your outline a second thing, that all believers are to pray in all situations. So we are to resort to prayer in every situation, difficult or favorable. But then now James is going to tell us, beginning in verse 14, that that's for all of us who are Christians, all of us who are believers. Verse 14 starts, is any of you sick? Now, the trouble or the suffering in the prior verse, in verse 13, was a very general word for all kinds of trouble, all kinds of suffering of whatever shape, whatever type, whatever form. It could be any bad situation. But now verse 14 focuses on a particular type of bad situation, that of sickness, physical illness. Now the word for sick here, like practically every word in the next several verses, could go 15 different ways. That's a slight exaggeration. But this passage, the entire passage, is fraught with interpretive difficulties. And several of the words could mean one thing or another. Now, I'm not going to bog you down or bore you with all of that, but just to let you know that I have spent hours and hours and hours looking at the various ways that this passage could be interpreted, and it begins with this first word in verse 14, sick. That could mean spiritual sickness, spiritual weakness, or it could mean physical sickness. I've concluded contextually that it's referring to physically sick, someone who is, someone who is ill. The word itself means one who is very, very weak. The person is, is physically ill, they are sick, and it may, be, it may be due to sin, a personal sin that they've committed. All sickness is because of sin in general, the Bible teaches. Sometimes sickness occurs because of sin in particular that we individually and personally commit. That may be the case with the person in view here, or it may not, as we'll see in verse 15. But not all sickness is due to personal sin, and even when it is, we may not, we may not know. But God designs, as we will see, that in all trials, including sickness, that our attention be drawn to our relationship with Him and whether or not we do have unconfessed sin in our lives. So what is this extremely weak, physically ill person to do? Is any of you sick, verse 14? Here's what he should do. He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when I say in your outline that all believers are to pray in all situations, I've got three categories of believers that should pray. The first one is leaders are to pray. Leaders are to pray. This person who is physically ill is instructed to call for the elders of, of the church. Now, he, this person who is ill is, is very ill, as we will see, but they are still able to summon the elders of the church. So they are very ill, maybe even, maybe even very gravely ill, but not necessarily ready to die. They still have the ability to summon the elders, but they are weak enough that they cannot go to them. 
The individual cannot go to the elders, and so they have to call the elders to his or herself. Now, let me just say, as this is just a quick aside, and then we'll get back to the passage. But notice who is supposed to let who know that there's a problem. The person who's got the difficulty is to let the elders know that I've got a difficulty. So can you come and help me? Okay. Now, here's part of what that means. Elders are not mind readers. We're going to see who these elders are in a bit, but I fit in that category according to the Bible, and I'm not a mind reader, and so I don't know who has difficulty unless you tell me. And sometimes, nobody in here has done this, but I have seen this over the years, and I've heard about this. Sometimes people play a sort of game. You know, I won't be around for a few weeks, and let's see if they figure it out. Let's see if they really care about me. The Bible says, if there's an issue, if you've got a problem, then call for the elders of the church. And in our day of the internet and electronic communication, sometimes people think they've let you know when they've not because it was on Facebook. Well, see, here's the thing. I don't have a Facebook account, okay? And that's not a reliable way to let us know. So if, seriously, dear friends, if something, anything is going on in your life for which you need help, we want to know. We want to help you. We want to pray with you. But we need to know that, and you need to let us know that. Now, who are these people that then are summoned, are called? They are called the elders. And why is it elders are, are called? Well, the word elder is used a number of times in Scripture, beginning in Acts chapter 11. It's used for the very first time of the church, in, in a church context in Acts chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. It says this, The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And so Luke, who wrote Acts, just mentions that they gave this money as a gift to brothers and sisters in another place, and they did that, sent it by Barnabas and Saul to have it sent to, and they just say, the elders. They don't explain who the elders are. They don't explain where they came from. Why is Luke able to do that? It's because the office of elder in the New Testament church is a carryover from the synagogue that everybody knew about in what was initially the Jewish church, the first century church. And so everybody knew what an elder was. An elder was a spiritually mature man who could help lead God's people. And we find that in the New Testament church as well. And these spiritually mature men who lead God's people are known by other names in the New Testament. They're called elders often, but also pastors and overseers. Those three terms refer to the same person, elder, pastor, overseer. Now, where do you see this? Again, I would have this for you on the screen, but Acts chapter 20 Verses 17 and 28. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28. In verse 17 of Acts 20, the Bible tells us that Paul called for the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he was departing that entire chapter of Acts chapter 20. is about Paul leaving a church at which he had served for three years. And he called for the elders to give him, them his farewell. And then down in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, he gives instruction to these elders that he's been with for three years and now is going to be leaving. And he says to them, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock 
of which the Holy Spirit has made you elders. He has made you overseers. And then he says, be shepherds of the church of God. And the word shepherd is the word pastor. And so he's talking to the elders, according to verse 17, but he tells these elders, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and as elders and overseers, you are to shepherd, pastor the church of God. And so all three terms, elder, overseer, pastor, used for the same people. You see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now notice this. In James chapter 5, you have someone who is very ill. They are to call for the elders of the church. And the elders of the church in your New Testament and into the present day, 2,000 years later, are still one of the two offices, along with deacon, that God has given to lead God's, God's people. And it, it is not that the ill person needs somebody, hear this, with the gift of healing. They simply need somebody who is mature in the faith to come and pray with and over, in this case, them. They don't need an apostle. The apostles in the New Testament had special abilities. They need elders, spiritually mature men, men who are faithful and faith-filled. They are ordinary men who are mature in the faith, who are summoned to pray. And verse 16 says that we can pray for each other to be healed. So elders are selected, now hear this, not because they have a special pipeline to God, but because they're a ready-made group of people who have the faith that's requisite, as we're going to see, to the healing that God may provide. So this is not something that was confined to an earlier age. What we're reading in James 5 is not something that they did 2,000 years ago, but now is no longer to be done. This is something that can and should be done today. God has elders in the church then. He had, had elders in the church then. He has them now, and they should function in this way today. It's something elders and other faithful people can and should do. In our church, we're blessed with mature men of faith that comprise our, our leadership team, and we're blessed with many, many faithful and faith-filled men and women who can and should pray with and for one another. Now, this extremely sick person needs some people who are faith-filled. Now, what's the other New Testament word for faith? I've been saying it for weeks. I said it earlier. Belief. So what this person needs is some people who really believe, who really believe what they claim, who are filled with faith. And presumably, these elders are men of faith, and this will make possible the healing. So in verse 14, what do the elders are to do? To do the, the sick person is to call for the elders. Now what do the elders do? Verse 14, pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I told you, this passage is just fraught with all kinds of stuff. And this is one of them. Yikes. The kinds of superstitions that have come out of this for centuries are amazing. Now, I'll try to fairly quickly share some of that with you, but I'm going to tell you a few things that this is not. When it tells the elders to pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, it is not the sacrament of last rites. 
It is not what is sometimes called extreme unction. Do you all know what that is? That is one very large denomination for whom that is one of the seven sacraments of the church, and it is the last sacrament that someone would participate in when they are on their deathbed. And they would call for a priest, no, a priest, not an elder. They would call for a priest, and only a priest, according to that teaching, only a priest can administer the last rites or this extreme unction, this anointing. Now, how did that happen? Well, by the third century, it had become the custom for oil used in the anointing for the sick to first be consecrated by the bishop in an area in which it was used. So something was added. Not only now is there this, this oil, we'll see what the oil is for in a bit, but not only is this oil, but the oil's got to be consecrated. It's got to be consecrated by a particular person. And then by the 10th century, it was increasingly the practice to insist that the anointing be carried out by a priest. By the 12th century, century the terms extreme unction and sacrament of the dying are found, and the anointing is restricted to those whose eminent death seems certain. In the 13th century, the ceremony of anointing was declared to be one of the seven sacraments instituted supposedly by Christ himself so that the Council of Trent in the 16th century can pronounce anathema, that is a curse, on anyone who denies that the sacred unction confers grace and remits sin or on anyone who thinks that the ceremony is repugnant to the sentiment of the blessed Apostle James or that the elders to whom James refers are not priests who have been ordained by a bishop. In the 1960s, the Second Vatican Council continues to treat, to treat extreme unction as a sacrament. And while the Second Vatican Council said it's not for those only who are at the point of death, it says this, as soon as any one of the faithful begins to be in danger of death from sickness or old age, the appropriate time for him to receive this sacrament has certainly already arrived. So one has responded to all of that by saying this, with all the love in the world, what can we say but that this has nothing to do with James chapter 5, verses 14 through 15? In the first place, there is no suggestion the oil used was previously consecrated, whether by the elders themselves or by anybody else. Indeed, it's difficult to see what such a ceremony might be supposed to mean or what difference it could possibly make. It cannot be anything but says this commentator, an unwarranted superstition. In the second place, the emphasis which has come to be placed on the anointing as carrying with it some kind of spiritual effect, conferring grace, remitting sins. It's not only wildly astray from our scriptural understanding of sin and forgiveness, but it also reverses the priorities that James sets out. James' primary emphasis is on healing the sickness. And James refers to sin only as something which may sometimes be involved. Look at verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Note the first word in that last sentence. If he has sinned. As I said earlier, there may be sin involved as a, that has resulted in the sickness. There, there may not. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Even so, there is no justification for thinking that the anointing confers forgiveness. And thirdly, 
and most obviously. Extreme unction, now hear this, is a supposed preparation for death. Rather, what James is talking about in this ministry, the elders in prayer and anointing, it is, is designed for healing and restoration to earthly life. It's not a preparation for death. And so it is not last rites. And it's also not a healing service. So you see people come to the front of the church and people anoint them with oil. That's not what's going on here. Where is this person who's being anointed? At home. Or in our case, in the hospital. So it is not, it's not a healing service in the church where, where people come forward. They go to him, not him to the church, and then to the front of the church. And we've already seen that this not, does not involve people who claim to have the gift of healing. They're just, they're just spiritually mature men, elders in the church. And thirdly, and this is what James really wants us to see, this is not extraordinary. The people involved are not extraordinary. They're just faith-filled people. The situation is not extraordinary. People are sick and seriously sick all the time. So it is not extraordinary. In fact, we'll see James is emphasizing the ordinariness of prayer on the part of people of faith for all sorts of things, including healing. Now, why oil? Call for the elders. The elders will pray. And they are to anoint with oil. Why oil? Some believe that the oil was for and would be today for medicinal purposes, to be used as medicine. And that's because in the first century uh, and beyond, uh, oil was often used as a, a medication. And medicine most certainly should be used. Doctors should be used. Hospitals should be used. And God should be thanked when those means are providentially used by Him to provide healing. But I am convinced that this is not a medicinal use of oil. If somebody has, somebody has cancer, my, you know, my giving them olive oil isn't going to help. Okay? It's not going to serve as a medicine for that. It's symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit, which you find in the Old Testament very often, when, when uh, the high priest was anointed, uh, when the leader of the nation was anointed, they would have oil poured on their head as a symbol of the Holy Spirit now abiding on that person for the leadership task to which they have been set apart. And so it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit, which is particularly, now hear this, important for the sick person who is not just sick, but they're very ill. And you see a parallel to this in the ministry of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus would go about healing people? There were a few occasions where he would do this weird thing. And kind of gross. I've, you know, you try to picture it. And he would spit on the ground. And he would take the, the Bible says he would take the dirt. And he would put it together. And then he would place this on the eyes of a blind person. And they would be healed. Or he would place this on the ears of a deaf person. But the only time he does those things is when someone is blind or deaf. Now, why do you think that's the case? Jesus is using a tangible symbol for this blind or deaf person to understand what is taking place. And by placing that so that they can, they can feel that, Jesus is indicating that something now very important is taking place, and this very ill person by the use of this oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, 
is going to sense the same thing. This person needs it because they are very, very ill, not just a common and temporary malady. And how do we know that this person's very ill? Very ill. Well, the, the word itself that's translated sick in verse 14 means to be weary and worn out. But also there are a number of other indications. It's the fact that the elders are called to the sick man rather than him going to them. It's that the elders do all the praying. Despite the fact that in verse 13, everybody, all of us are told to pray in all situations. And yet in this situation, who does the praying? It's the, the elders who have been called. And thirdly, the, uh, the, uh, the, the term itself, meaning worn, and, and worn out and weary, points to a sickness that's prolonged or serious enough to create a dire situation. And lastly, the elders are said in a very unique expression in the New Testament to pray over the individual. In all likelihood, this is a person who is on their bed. They're so weak physically, they cannot, they cannot get out of their bed. That's why they come to, him, to them. And so this is a very ill person who needs this, this tangible symbol of the presence of God and the possibility that God may heal him or her. So what is the outcome? Verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Well, you look at that and you say, there is a guarantee that if I can get Brown to come over to my house. So we need to take a few minutes to explain. We've already identified elders as part of the New Testament church, faithful people who are faith-filled. This can and should be done today. But then what happens when that praying occurs? In verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person person well. And yet we all know faithful people who have prayed and don't and been prayed over and don't get healed. Right? So how how do we put these together? You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the great apostle Paul says, I, Paul, prayed three times, Lord, take this what was apparently a physical malady away from me, and the Lord refused. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul instructed Timothy to take medicine for his own ailments. The Bible is clear that we do not order God around. And we don't say, God, I believe for this thing. Now you have to do it. (laughs) And think about if that were the case. Just think about if it were the case that I could believe something's going to happen, now God's obligated to do it. Yikes. I mean, the truth is, I really don't know the best thing that should happen, not only in all situations, even in most situations. If I had, if you had the power to believe for something and then God is obligated to give it, and you were doing that on your own behalf and on behalf of your friends, you know what would happen in short order? Your friends would be coming to you and say, you know, could you stop exercising that gift? You are messing my life up. You're asking for stuff. God's obligated to give it. And then when he gives it, it turns everything is messed up. Because you don't know what's best. You don't know what's next. You don't know what that thing you're asking for is going to be related to in a myriad ways. Tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year. And so that's why the Bible says, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything 
according to his will, he hears us. Now, how does that relate to James chapter 5 and verse 15? The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. It is this. That phrase, the prayer offered in faith, is used one time in the New Testament, once, and it's here. And it is a unique, obviously, it's used one time, a unique way of referring to the prayer that God chooses to make effective at a given time. God does not choose to make every prayer that we pray effective in the way we want. But there are times when God does choose to do that. And the times that He chooses to do that will only occur when people of faith, people who believe, offer, offer that prayer. And so I think we can properly read the verse and understand the verse with the insertion of a single word to get the idea. It's the word only. Only the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And in the context, what what James is telling us is this is very ordinary. Just faith-filled, faithful people can pray a prayer for anything and pray for the healing of a sick person And God may choose in His will to grant that, but it will only be done when that prayer is given in faith. It is not saying every prayer offered in faith will result in healing. But this can and is done, is James' point, and should be sought. And then at the end of verse 15, he says, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. No, if, not since he has sinned. And sin is mentioned. Here's why. The person may or may not have sinned and thus have this sickness. But whenever we are sick, even with relatively small things, you know what our minds should do? We should think about how it is that sickness has come into God's good world at all. How has that happened? Through the fall. It should be a reminder to us of our own fallenness and the fact that we live in a fallen world. Even if the particular sickness that I'm suffering from is not the result of personal and individual sin, our minds should always go to our fallen condition and our sin and our desire to be in right relationship with God. All believers are to pray in all situations. That includes leaders and also more quickly, and all of God's people said, and in your outline it says members as well. Leaders are to pray, but members are to pray. Verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now some say, as as you read that, confess your sins to each other. We should get together and tell each other our sins, even if those people to whom we are telling those sins are not involved in the, the sin itself. Now, the truth is, if you and I are burdened over a sin and we speak with a friend to be held accountable and to ask them to pray with us and perhaps even to meet with us in order for us to advance in godliness, that is a very good thing and is to be encouraged. And it happens very often in our assembly, and I commend it. But the biblical position regarding confessing sin can be summed up this way. Confession must be made to the person against whom we have sinned and from whom we need and desire to receive forgiveness. There is so-called secret confession that's made to God, and it's called secret because there are secret sins committed against God alone. 
But then there is private confession because some of our sins are committed against both man and God. A private individual or two or three. And they must be confessed then to the offended party. Jesus said in Matthew 23, chapter 5, and verses 23 and 24, If you're offering your gift at the altar, there remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So this is going and confessing to someone that I have sinned against about what I have done wrong and asking for their forgiveness. But then there's public confession because some sins are committed against a group, a community, or a whole congregation, and so must be confessed publicly. So James is dealing with a situation in which we have sinned against a brother or sister. We must go to him or her privately and confess in what way we have sinned and ask for forgiveness. The biblical principle is consistently that confession is due to the party who has been offended. And the believers whom James has, who have, have, has not even met are to engage in mutual confession of their sin when it is committed against one another. But it is not for them to gather in a group, as many people have misapplied the passage, and say, now let's all confess our sins to each other. And then it says they can pray together to be healed. That may be spiritual healing, since sin is involved. But it, nothing precludes us from praying for physical healing for one another as well. So all believers are to pray in all situations. That includes leaders, that includes members. And then we're given an example at the end of verse 16 and in ver through verse 18 from the prophet Elijah. Leaders pray, members pray, prophets prayed. Verse 16 says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, I don't have time and I don't have the necessity, really, to make the point of the message to delve into all of Elijah's career and all that he did. Here's the main point that James is making in using the illustration of Elijah. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a man, notice, just like us. And the idea here then is this prayer is available to you just like Elijah. It's not just the elders. It's all of us. It's not just the prophets. It is us. He's a man just like us. Now, at the end of verse 16, it says, the prayer of a righteous man, or we can insert woman, is powerful and effective. You say, well, I'm not, not righteous. If you know Jesus, you're perfectly righteous before God. And if you truly know Jesus, you not only have perfect standing before God because He looks at you through Jesus' righteousness, but you are pursuing righteousness in your life as, as well. And so, parent, you praying for a child is powerful. Wife, you praying for that husband is powerful, says the Word of God. Be faithful in that powerful act of prayer on behalf of our children, on behalf of our spouses, on behalf of others and other situations. And then verses 19 and 20 tell us that believers are not just to pray in all situations. All believers are to pray in all situations. But we are to pursue one another. Pursue one another. Now, I said that this was the last message in the book of James.
But it appears I have two messages in this one message. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to conclude this message next week. And we'll conclude the book of James next week. So I'm going to save that third point for next week because I have one more important thing that I want to do. I told you I would tell you why we don't have slides. Well, the reason we don't have slides is because Brother Larry Castle puts those together for us. Thank you. Brother Larry Castle puts those slides together for us. Larry's not here. The reason Larry is not here is that uh, Julie went to uh, the emergency room and uh, with back pain and pneumonia-like symptoms. Now, she apparently grew very ill last night, and so they took her to the emergency room. As a result, both Larry and Julie are not here. Our senior high teens uh, will stay in with the adults for, this, uh, for our next hour, our Discovering God hour. But I would like to conclude our time by praying for our sister Julie and praying that God would take care of whatever is going on with her. And so let's bow together. Let's join in prayer. And let's pray for our sister. Our Father, we thank you for instructing us in your word about yourself, about all of your infinite abilities. And then, Lord, telling us how we can tap into your power. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of prayer that we can and should and must resort to in all situations, difficult and, and favorable. And, Lord, you have focused in on one of the maladies that afflicts us in a fallen world, all of us, at one time or another, and sickness, physical illness. Lord, you made our bodies. You are ultimately the great physician. You made us. You know us better than any earthly doctor. You have healed you can heal. Lord, we believe this completely. There is nothing that restrains your power. Nothing. And so we can come to you and we can ask you to do your will in any situation. And so, Lord, we bring our sister Julie to you. We thank you for her. We thank you for her sacrificial service to you and to your people. And Lord, we don't know what's going on with her body right now, but we know that whatever it is, you can have it identified and you can touch her body, and you can heal it. We ask you, Lord, to do so. And whether you do so directly or you do so indirectly and providentially through the gift of the physicians and the hospital, either way, the praise belongs to you, and we will be careful to give it. We thank you for this opportunity to gather. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.